we're very strategic on pushing stories on specific dates with specific news outlets that would then hopefully um, yeah, have some effect with other, uh, with other marketing channels that we have. Our guest today is on a mission to make it as easy as possible for all of us to do some good and has a unique approach to social entrepreneurship, building partnerships and knows a thing or two about the power of a good story. Hello and welcome to Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast series on CEO communications. I'm Lena Carlson and I'm here with my co-host Oliver Ass, the CEO of EO Ipso. Today we're speaking with Sebastian Stricker. Through his previous venture, Share the Meal, Sebastian developed an app that feeds over 30,000 people a day and has provided over 100 million meals globally. Today, he's the CEO of Share, a social enterprise based in Berlin, and you've probably seen the products on the shelves of your local supermarket. Welcome, Sebastian Stricker. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here. So I think the topic of social entrepreneurship has started gathering some impetus, particularly here in Germany and Europe. And who better to talk to about it than you? You've had a couple of companies in this field, and we'd love to know a little bit about your history there. I think I, I never really knew what I really want to do. And I thought the solution to that is that I just try out a lot of different things. So over the past 15 years, I started in business administration. I didn't really like it. So I then uh, went into international relations. That's still at university. Then I went into business consulting, strategy consulting. From there, I joined uh, an organization called the Clinton Health Access Initiative. It's one of the foundations from the Clinton family. Worked on malaria in East Africa. From there, I went to the United Nations. First started on HIV, then on mother and child nutrition, and from there into a more policy, global strategic issues uh, kind of role, and then started my first startup. And that first startup is called Share the Meal. It's an app basically around the idea of making it as easy as possible to do good. So imagine we all have our smartphones. The idea was we built a button on your smartphone in an app, of course, and whenever you tap that button, you actually feed another person in, uh, in need. And I think the two starting points from us were that we found it crazy that it only costs 40 euro cents to feed one person for a full day. It's actually the total costs that it takes uh, the United Nations to feed one person. And on the other side, that there's just so many more people that have a smartphone than that actually suffer from, from severe acute malnutrition. And so the communication angle that we built is that we said, imagine you're sitting at a table or you're having something to eat and you you have someone opposite to you and that person hasn't eaten anything. Uh, and someone comes up and tells you it costs 40 cents to feed that person for a full day, I think most of us would actually, if there was an easy way to do that, to give those 40 cents, 40 euro cents, they would actually do it. And so we said the communication angle is that you share your meal with someone who's in need and that by simply tapping that button in, on your smartphone. So we built that in an app. We were extremely lucky on the communications. It took off. It became a little bit viral. And so we're feeding about yeah around 30,000 people per day at the moment. And when did the idea come to you? I mean, is it, the way you put it is almost matter-of-factly. It's a great story, obviously, very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, you make it sound very natural that you went down that path. But at some point, I guess you must have I don't know, a light bulb moment or some idea or discussion. How, how did it come about? Yeah. So I think, interestingly, there really was uh, some sort of light bulb moment. I think... With most of the stories that I hear, I somehow feel that it really is a sequence of relatively many small insights, small bits of information that you that you get to know, and then an idea or a concept forms. I think that was the case, but there also was a light bulb uh, moment. The light bulb moment was 
it's like it almost feels a little um, artificial, but it's really true. During lunch breaks at WFP, at the World Food Program, I would sometimes go jogging. And I remember that I had heard just before that it is those 40 euro cents to feed one person for a full day. But at the same time, we know relatively well how much money we would need in total to feed everyone, um, everyone actually globally and end global hunger. And so the one uh, number is the 40 euro cents or 50 dollar cents at that time. Um, and the other number is that within WFP, people are of the opinion that it would take about 20 billion dollars per year to actually end chronic malnutrition. I thought the 20 billion dollars, that's not that much. And the 40 euro cents is also not that much. And if there was an easy way, I think many people would actually be willing to give that money and then the light bulb moment was also that there was a documentary at that time that was called super size me oh my god yes. yeah. so good and i thought how beautiful would it be if i walk into a mcdonald's and instead of saying super size my meal i would say and I don't know, it would cost a dollar or a dollar fifty, I don't remember. And just instead of saying supersize my meal, please share my meal and add those 40 euro cents or 50 dollar cents to the bill and have actually not only a meal for myself, but also for someone in need. That was actually the light bulb moment. It's a super yeah. good story. Um, I'd love to talk about the viral moment because I think that's everyone's dream. What was it? Was it the fact that it was a company that was doing good very easily? Something yeah. else? So I think the not so surprising development then was that the very first idea didn't work. So speaking with those fast food chains or then also hotel chains, they weren't interested in that idea. So I, I thought, well, if they're supersized me, I could also talk with them and maybe they'll adopt the share idea. And that didn't work. They were just not interested. Or also maybe a different interpretation. I didn't have the reputation needed that they would implement such a program with me. And then I decided, well, maybe through an app it can work. I think I was very fortunate that on the one side, I found someone to basically for free help me build this app, relatively wealthy business angel. And on the other side, it then went viral or somewhat viral. And I think the truth is that the virality was triggered by a relatively nice idea at the core, not particularly well executed in terms of UI and UX. But then a lot of preparation. We started, I think it must have been March or April 2014, I think, that we started Chattermeal. And the sequence of events was that in the morning in Germany, Spiegel wrote an amazing piece on Chattermeal. Extremely positive. Very, very nice piece. And then by midday, uh, we got a call from the evening news. And the evening news asked us, uh, or the evening news basically told us that they will do a piece in the evening news on Chattermeal. And that combination of Spiegel and the evening news triggered so much other news coverage that by the evening we would uh, jump up in the download rankings and we'd be the second most downloaded uh, app in Germany. And only by jumping into these download rankings, even more people saw us and even more people started downloading us, which then triggered a week or two weeks thereafter Google and Apple to take notice of us and then push us forward in the, in the app stores. That created then this dynamic that... By now, we have about 1.5 million people using the app, and uh, most of that actually never had any marketing budget behind it. That's really interesting, and I think it's sort of every communicator's dream, and it's the virtuous circle we often talk about, where one thing leads to another, and it's not limited to social, to online, offline, to traditional media. They all work with each other and reinforce each other, and uh, it's really interesting that um, you know you broke through that ceiling, probably not 
anticipating that to that extent or was was it something you hoped and dreamt about? Yeah, so I think um, there really is that threshold uh, of awareness that you need to go through so that there is other communications uh, channels picking up the story and then pushing it even further. Yeah. I think our perception at that time was that that is our only chance, given that ah, we don't okay. have uh, any marketing budget to spend. Yeah. And so that was the preparation that I referenced before. There were months of preparing for that one day where we would launch the app. So I had met Spiegel before. I had talked with them yeah. before and I made it really easy for them to publish an article. I had met the television channel before. I had given them all the B, um, how do you call it, B, uh, B-roll material mm-hmm. uh, so that if they want to do a piece, everything would be ready. And I had spoken to probably 50 other news outlets as well. The idea really was we have to to break through that threshold so that there's some sort of media coverage. By that media coverage, then we uh, jump ahead in the download rankings. By jumping ahead in the download rankings, Apple and Google would pick us up and then support us uh, over the medium term. So uh, we didn't know whether it would happen, but we really tried to make it happen. Yeah. This is something we talk a lot about with clients or other startups as well, is that you know the best time to start talking to the media is today. If you haven't already, and even if you don't have the story, you know, just to start to come into contact with them so that they're familiar with who you are, you start to give them bits of information so that when you're ready and they're ready, then you have that fantastic day Mm. where you get picked up in the news, which is obviously, you know, easier said than done. Yeah, um, I think in our perception, PR is something that can work amazingly well. Uh, It's something that is very hard to manage. Uh, It's very hard to scale. It's very hard to guarantee at certain points. But I think at the same time, it's what worked best with us so far. And we are investing a lot of time into PR, Um, investing the time to build the relationships medium to long-term relationships with media outlets and we're very strategic on pushing stories on specific dates with specific news outlets that would then hopefully um, yeah, have some effect with other, uh, with other marketing channels that we have. And moving on from share the meal to share, I was listening to a podcast of yours and obviously relationship building was kind of critical for that as well in terms of getting your first partners which were Reaver and DM, correct? Yep, that's correct. So what exactly is share for our listeners? Yeah, some of your listeners might be familiar with Tom's, Tom's Shoes. It's the very first company that introduced a concept that is called buy one, give one. Uh, there's a couple of other companies that have adopted that. Warby Parker is another famous example. UB is another example in the US. The idea really is you buy a product and someone else in need will receive an equivalent product. And we thought, first of all, I love the idea, I love the concept, I think it's emotionally, it totally touches me uh, to imagine I buy something to eat for myself and someone else who might not be as lucky as I am also gets something to eat. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. And given with my background uh, at the World Food Program, uh, I knew how surprisingly cheap it can be to feed someone else. And so really the, the, the whole idea is to build a consumer goods company uh, and for every product that you buy from that brand, the brand being share, uh, someone else will get an equivalent product. Um, And uh, we try to be extremely focused, uh, really building a consumer goods brand, not a specific product line, but a brand that can be attached to a lot of different products. So right now we uh, have mineral water, we have snack bars, toothbrushes, uh, soap. Uh, We will be having toilet paper relatively soon. So we really try to build a roof of 
products under one brand and that brand being Share. It's really cool. And looking around your office right now, the products look beautiful. You know, they are something that people really do want to buy. They look, you know, high class. And if you're doing something good as well, not so bad. Yeah. And they taste good as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you meet me at an interesting point. Um, right in the startup, it's an up and down of uh, emotions and successes, but also setbacks. For sure, yeah. I think we've been very fortunate that so far we've uh, enjoyed more successes than setbacks, but not everything works the way we want it to work. And uh, I would include both uh, the design of the product. I'm not 100% certain whether we have the best design to raise awareness, to really have a visual USP. Uh, I'm not 100% certain whether we communicate our core, that one plus one principle, or the buy one, give, give one principle. I see surprisingly many consumers of ours that buy our products, but buy them for the quality and never understood that there's a social dimension to it as well. Can I ask about the brand? I mean, that's really interesting what you say. And the name share is obviously a fairly common word. So it was difficult to get the, you know, the brand IP to use that. And I think second question on brand, you said recently that in the beginning, you didn't really write down what the brand is or was or how it should be presented. So basically the brand guidelines, which are often in the beginning of such a process. So be interested in those two aspects of of the brand building. Um, so on the first, or maybe let me start with the second mm-hmm. one. Uh, given that I really don't have much experience with communications, but also with brand building or with IP law, and also the team, we're a relatively young team, we really struggle with building a clean brand that is also documented. So up until today, we didn't really succeed in documenting. We don't have a brand book, which I mean, it's not good from a management standpoint. It's really one of our challenges and one of those setbacks that we have that we find it extremely difficult to capture that idea that we all love so much, but really define what it is and what it isn't. So if I mentioned in one of my previous interviews that we don't have a brand book, I don't know when you heard that interview, but we still don't have a brand book. Uh, And we somehow need to solve this riddle. This clearly sounds like a challenge or a pain point for you at the moment. Would you say, though, that people like within the company and externally understand what the company stands for at its essence, though? I think something must work because we are more successful than unsuccessful, but I'm not sure whether it's because the brand is particularly clean and well-defined. It might be sufficiently uh, well-positioned, but in my mind, it has a lot more potential. It may also be, given that we hardly have any budget to spend on creating brand awareness, um, that it just takes time. I mean, my gut feeling right now is even a brand that might be suboptimal at the start can become very good if you are consequent and continue polishing that starting point over a medium to long term. I think that makes a lot of sense because no, no, it wasn't by design, but often if you lock in a brand too early, it's not quite clear what it is and should look like and feel like, uh, and then you put it to one side and basically settle that question, but it may not be optimal. And you give yourself the room for maneuver to now, after a few years, decide what we're actually about. And I'm sure there are lots of learnings in between. Yeah, uh, I mean, that would be the the positive interpretation. Let's go with that, then. (laughs) I also have to say, it might just be something that needs to develop over time. And you need to create a specific feeling, and you also create that that feeling by receiving feedback from stakeholders. Uh, So it it might be that it is the right process, 
But I would say if I had to identify challenges that we have, even on a company level, I would definitely say it's one of the, uh, the challenges that we have. But within the communications uh, work stream, it's one of our biggest challenges. And let's talk about the team for a bit. You have quite a number of employees now, all relatively young. What's been your philosophy towards hiring here? Yeah, so shares um, last, I would say, about 30 months that we had since uh, starting the company. Um, they've been quite a ride. We started at the very first moment, it was two of us. We then very quickly built this founding team of four, uh, of four people. And since then, we've grown to right now about 40 people. And we've had an amazing development in terms of revenue, in terms of products that we have. We started with 10 SKUs. We're right now at about 35 to 40 SKUs. Uh, we started in about 5,000 POS. We're right now in about 6,500 POS. But from the very first day on in 5,000, POS. So it's uh, we've reached about 400,000 people through our social interventions. We've built more than 60 wells. We're right now building 15 wells at the same time, distributing over 4 million meals so far through Share, uh, 2 million soaps. So it's been quite a quite a ride. And I would I would think in hindsight it's always much easier to, or at least to me, to find some sort of storyline in what happened <laughs> or to make sense of the concepts that I learned at university. And I think also Share goes through the life phases of an innovations project or a startup. And I would say in the first phase in, in recruiting, the team was really dominated by a focus on energy and enthusiasm and, and low costs, maybe. And we're right now at a critical stage where we need to introduce processes we need to hire for experience. So we're in that stage where we need to change our uh, hiring mechanisms, but we also need to change the, the processes that we have within the, within the team. And we also need to be careful on having a culture and an atmosphere that uh, corresponds to the mission and the vision that we have. How do you how do you organize the internal communications? When people come in, is there onboarding speech you give or do you have like Monday morning meetings where you, you know, reinforce the mission, you know, the sense of purpose? How does it work for you? Yesterday evening, I had a um, I had a dinner with one of our retail or potential future retail partners, actually, and they asked a quite similar question. It's a company with more than ten thousand employees, and they wanted to know. So, how does communication, or how do you actually, how do you guys organize work at, at Share? It's only forty people, yeah. And I think the reality is that we didn't have the time to build processes or mechanisms. It's really a lot ad hoc and uh, on the go decisions on how we do that. Fortunately, we now have. Uh, a COO, amazing, uh, amazing colleague who introduces those mechanisms. So what basically happens is we have one format on Monday mornings where we have a joint breakfast, the whole team. That breakfast is used to kick off the week, but also to communicate important information to the team, including introducing new team members, which happens uh, not that seldom at the moment. Uh, so that's number one. Then in the afternoons, we uh, have all the work stream leaders that we have. It's about seven, eight people in the team where we basically come up with the strategy for the week. On Wednesday mornings, we have a management team meeting which consists out of five people it's the senior management team and on Fridays we have a weekly review where the whole team assembles again and lets and reviews uh, what happened during the past week now with new staff members that, that join I usually ask them to uh, to schedule a lunch with me <laughs> just go into my calendar and, uh, and set up a lunch date and they're also being given an onboarding uh, folder 
we've become quite diligent on recruiting as well. So uh, once they really join the team, they already know the team members um, and they know a lot about, uh, we give them our strategy and, and so they should already know a lot about the company. But beyond that, not much is happening, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, that's already quite a lot. Um, I just was curious, obviously, social entrepreneurship is a really big topic at the moment. You know, there's a lot of documentaries and a lot of op-eds and thought pieces out there at the moment about what can we do to make our planet better? And I think it's a question a lot of us are asking. Where do you see the company fitting into that conversation right now? I'm also of that opinion that we have a beautiful global development, which is that we succeed on solving quite a lot of problems that we have, child mortality, literacy rates, uh, and so on. Something that used to be the Millennium Development Goals and are now the Sustainable Development Goals. We make progress on most of these issues. Unfortunately, at the same time, we have a couple of other issues which don't look as good. I think it's issues such as where I come from, food security. I find it unbelievable and unacceptable that there's more people suffering from hunger on an absolute level. There's more people suffering from hunger than when I joined the United Nations World Food Program. The core mission of WFP is to end global hunger. I joined them eight, nine years ago. At that point of time, it was roughly 800 million. Now we speak about, I think, roughly 830 million. Unbelievable in my mind. Unacceptable. I really find that difficult to... To accept, to be honest. I also agree. I feel like it is unacceptable, but I think sometimes people are questioning what can they do or yeah. what's the impact that one person yeah. can have. And I think you set a very good example of how small uh, the action needs to be. But what are some of the things that yeah. we should be doing? Uh, it's a big something that I think about a lot, uh, and I'm not sure whether I have a clear answer to it. I think in regards to social entrepreneurship and uh, and building companies or organizations, we can discuss about that for for days. But uh, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that really every organizational type or every sector of society has a responsibility to play, including the business sector. Yeah. And now share is just as much as I love the idea of sharing and how I believe that it makes a society better and that it actually makes you happier as an individual if you share. I think you're happier if your friends are happy. I think you're happier if your family is well off. Um, I really believe in the concept of share. But at the same time, share for me has a larger mission, which is that I, I want to establish a company that proves that uh, societal responsibility makes a company better than another company that doesn't uh, find societal responsibility important. I want to show that uh, we can be the better, whatever, Nestle, Procter, whatever the names are. Uh, But that's kind of a game that I enjoy playing and something that I find really, really worthwhile spending so much time on. This startup, and for me, it's really, it captures a lot of my time. Yeah. And you mentioned the social responsibility of companies. Obviously, you convince some very big retail chains to work with you. And obviously, that gives you a big multiplier and you, you're, yeah. you're dependent in a way on Absolutely, those people yeah. putting your products on the yeah. shelf. In the beginning, you mentioned that the fast food chains in America, when you started out, they were not interested. In general, yeah. fast food chains weren't interested. Now you get these big chains working with you. Yeah. Do they buy into the story? Because they're known to drive their suppliers really hard. Yeah. The margins are pretty low in the fast-moving yeah. consumer goods. So does your story help you to have healthier margins? Do, yeah. do they give you room to breathe? So on our retail partners, DM and Reva, Without them, share wouldn't exist. That's It's just a reality and a fact. Um, now, the question is, why are they part of this project? And I think it's twofold. The one is, 
I think the realization that companies need to have a social purpose, that's a, an idea that is picking up. Just recently, you had uh, this uh, forum in the US, all these US CEOs uh, saying yes. oh, it's not only about profit, but also about uh, medium and long term sustainability and so on. Uh, I think that's an, an idea that is uh, that is catching on especially at the senior management level. So, and in that sense, we offer a project that goes exactly into that direction, of, of course. And then there's the other dimension, I think the individual dimension, which goes back to your question uh, a little bit. Uh, what is it that actually the individual can do? Is it only the role of businesses or is it also, is there some sort of individual responsibility to, to do good yeah? or to at least not be bad? I mean, I think there is a moral obligation to at least not make the world a worse place. But I think it's actually, it's just a beautiful idea to think that I'm actually trying to make the world a better place. I find that somehow motivating and I see a sense in it and I just somehow more interesting than um, just making money. And I think that we succeeded in when we had those retailer discussions. I think what was different with us than with most other suppliers is that we were able to speak with senior management, including CEOs. I think those people, and now, I mean, we know hundreds of managers by now, with, uh, by now within those our retail partners, also on an individual level, they find this a worthwhile project. And so uh, I think in the end, we've, uh, we've come to a situation where they see a business uh, reason to do this, but they also just individually like working on something that they find intrinsically good. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think you're showing that social entrepreneurship is a way forward and suddenly there is a way for, you know, traditional businesses to kind of take some steps towards the future as well. What would be kind of your final piece of advice for people who are interested in getting into social entrepreneurship, how to go about that? Um, I think it's not that different to any other startup or innovations project advice. I think what's most important is, for one, to start and not just to think about it or talk about it, but to really take the very first step and do concrete things to uh, see whether your idea actually works or not. As an anecdote, I was thinking about Chad Emil, uh, so my first startup, when I got the feedback from the fast food chains, I was so demotivated and I just paused the project for, I think, about three months or something. Yeah? And then I had another setback. And I, but it took, at some point, I had to take the decision, okay, whatever feedback I'm getting now, I'm reserving the next 12 months and I'm doing this project and I'll see where it takes me. And I learned so much more by really working on the project, but just researching about it or talking about it or thinking about it to really make your hands dirty and start something was very important uh, for me, at least. And the second one is, even though there's so much idealism and energy and enthusiasm around ideas, I feel that risk management is something that is tremendously important. I mean, really doing analysis on uh, the different options that you have and trying to then relatively sober, to take sober decisions on what the best path forward is. Uh, that's at least how we try to do it. In terms of communications, is there any particular piece of advice you've internalized that you could share and yeah. that you think helped you a great deal in building yeah. this fantastic organization? Yeah. 
Yeah. So my experience is when I uh, spoke with the fast food chains, no one was interested. And I think the uh, the reason why we now succeeded in getting those huge retailers on board, and there's a couple of other now major, major channels that are also going to come on board, is because we have trust and reputation. And so the question is, where does this trust and reputation come from? And I think we really try to be as transparent and true and honest and medium to long term oriented as possible. I really don't want to do any quick wins. I want to build relationships with whatever stakeholder I'm working uh, with that hopefully lasts over decades. And I hope that the people that we work with understand that and realize that. And uh, it might very well be that it's not the best way forward over the short term. But over the long term, I want to keep the credibility that we have. And yeah, and hopefully that helps. Spoken like someone with a lot of experience. Thanks so much for sharing your insights today with us, Sebastian. Thanks for listening to another episode of Speak Like a CEO. For bonus material from the show and to learn more about this week's amazing guest, make sure to head to our website, howtospeaklikeaceo.com, or sign up to our newsletter to receive exclusive offers. Don't forget, our book of the same name is also out now and available to buy online at howtospeaklikeaceo.com. Got a question for Oliver and I? We love hearing from you. And if you're loving the podcast, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at like a CEO underscore and Instagram at eoipsocoms. See you next time.